funny, like we, this podcast really started in, I guess, some respect, similar ethos to what you guys did, because we, you know, we sit around, you know, we listen to Bill Simmons podcast, you know, we follow a lot of American sports and all that kind of stuff. And we were like, the podcast landscape, there's just, there was just nothing in terms of like longer form and like that more, you know, relaxed chat, really no structure, just sort of having a conversation. It just didn't seem to exist. And we were, it's not an original idea. We were like, maybe we just started. And And we were freewheeling talking about AFL anyway, just as mates having a, having a chat, watching the game and afterwards going through the analysis of the actual game rather than all the stuff on the outside. So it sort of made sense that we got a microphone and started talking about it. And it's funny. <laughs> and, and like with the interviews we've done so far, like the players like it. They don't, they're not against it. And, you know, they're, they're pretty keen on being heard and being, you know, in a conversation that's structured a bit differently. So I guess thanks so much for chatting to us. I've heard bits and pieces of you guys' interviews in the press so far. I know kind of why you made it and all that kind of stuff. But I guess the thing that struck me so much with it is we've seen, you know, coaches' addresses to a degree. We've seen bits and pieces like that before. But this seems like you've really got their trust and it seems a lot rawer compared to what we've seen. Like, you know, you've seen with Seven, they might cross and it doesn't seem, it does seem like he might have pre-prepared elements of this. Whereas it did feel a lot rawer. I guess the first thing is, how were you able to break that wall down? Like, how, how did for the two of you, how did that process go? Uh, look, I think it's a great question. I think that there's, like, two elements to it. One, first, again, thanks for having us on, guys. Um, Pleasure. Uh, the, the first thing is, is kind of the obvious answer, which is time. Like, you know, we yeah. spent 22 weeks with most of these guys. Like, you know, there's it just takes time to build trust, you know, like I think you can see across all the interviews of the players and and the other talented that like the first couple weeks are weird and they just always are like, that's just, that's just kind of unavoidable. And if you go in expecting that and you go in accounting for that from a production standpoint, you're just in a much better place, but you also go in communicating that to the talent. And then suddenly there's like, there's an acknowledgement that the whole thing is a little strange. Right. And like, I think that, being transparent and acknowledging the vulnerability that's needed for this to be successful and how hard that is for people kind of takes the pressure off a little bit because it's like, oh, okay, it's okay if I'm weird for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I think that, I think the other part of it, and this is where I think it'll be interesting to see how much, you know, the, the willingness of the talent extends to other media because we don't come out the weekend after a game. Like that's a huge factor for the, for these teams. It's, it's a huge factor in terms of us being in, in rooms and, and filming, um, you know, like game plans and, and tactical information. Like we don't come out a week later. We're not going to impact their performance that cycle. Um, if anything, like, you know, it's, it's something that people can look back on. It's something to contextualize all these headlines that come out. So I think that like from a format perspective, that is a huge benefit in terms of letting people trust because it makes them go, oh, we don't have to worry about this journal is going to put this up tomorrow and I'm playing on Thursday and all of a sudden, like, I have to worry about every single person asking me that question. Like, you know, that alone, that kind of, like, little technical detail, I think, makes a huge impact. I don't know. Luke, would you agree? Apologies. Um, Absolutely. And I'll add that you know, we've been out now for a week and the feedback that we've got from within inside the AFL community, being clubs, 
players, player managers, is that they understand what we're trying to achieve and we achieved it to the point where you know, they want to be involved in future. Hopefully this is seen as, um, as the new norm within sport, you know, within this country. I mean, cricket um, did such a great job of that earlier in the year with the test, which was you know, and also a remarkable look and breaking down the, the Australian cricket team. Um, hopefully, you know, what we've done, set, set about over these seven episodes will stand the game of AFL and its fans in, in better shape for access in the future. Yeah. There's also like, I mean, you guys are talking about the, the role of like podcasts and how open athletes are to do it. I think that that's something as well that like when you know it's going to be a long project, like when you know that there's going to be a chance to dive into things, like I think Luke and I both would would admit that we could have probably done a couple more episodes. It felt really fast to us. But th- there is a real difference between spending a season with someone and telling their story over eight hours than there is you know, popping them up for an interview for, for six minutes. And so I think that that long form really allows players and, and coaches and staff to kind of let their personality come through. And it also lets them like actually get out what they want to say, not just feel like they're rushing to hit like a talking point or something. It also gives other other players, because the thing I, I noticed about the documentary as well, it, you know, we hear from in the media all the time, you know, Dangerfield and, and these kind of guys. And he obviously speaks very well on that kind of thing. But it was nice seeing a lot of, you know, we do interviews with um, Sam Wederman from, from Melbourne. He's a friend and we kind of keep in touch with him. And um, it's I, I find it really interesting to chat to those kind of guys. You know, it's it's yeah. we hear from the big players all the time that go on the talk shows and stuff. It's, you know, I've, I've heard that narrative so many times. That I, I find it so much more interesting chatting to, to people like that. And that's one of the things I took away from the documentary. It was, you know, great to see, I guess, not different tiers of players, but like, you know, some of the younger players as well you know, able to get their voice out because they want to talk to. And there's only, you know, this is the thing. They, you know, these shows, they book all the, I get it. Like they want, you know, the big stars and stuff like that. But the spots are always filled with these guys and it's like they just can't really get a voice out. And I think that's something that podcasts can play a role in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, totally agree. It was great to um, have a deeper insight in, in particular for me, uh, Eddie Betts and Nick Nat. I mean, two very affable, very lovable players, but, Having watched this documentary series, um, I, I just hope Eddie plays for another 10 years. I think it was very raw to see. I mean, he's a superstar, but he's such a grounded individual, and you don't always tend to see that. So that was that was a really beautiful moment. Uh, I thought you, you did that really, really well with, with his personal story, which leads me into Thanks, my question. I mean, documentaries from what I know, I've got a couple of people in the industry, take a lot of planning. Um, so was this series always being planned and then COVID hit and you just had to swivel quickly or was it you had your finger on the pulse and you went, no, nah, there's a big opportunity here to get entrenched in the AFL and you just had the resource to, to hit the ground running? Uh, it's a great question. Like, I, I don't – there's so many documentaries across, like, the history of the form where you're like, did they just get that up and going that fast? And I yeah. wish I could say that we were that flexible, <laughs> but no, we were planning on this for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, Luke, Luke and I met at the grand final 2019 and we had both been, you know, talking with Amazon and like separately kind of developing different concepts. And so I think my journey to it started off the back of my last show um, and <laughs> had been, so I did a show called the Jim Connor Files, which 
uh, was on a race car driver, a guy named Ken Block. Mm. Um, actually, we got a best review in Australia after all after all that, which was really funny. But um, my 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 wife's from Gippsland, and we've been looking for a way to come back to Australia. And just in talking with Amazon, they were like, "Oh, what do you want to do next?" And I was like, "We, you know, are you doing anything in Australia? Like, what's you know, what's your platform there?" And they're like, "Funny you should ask." And so we kind of started that process in February 2019. And um, Luke, I know you guys had started it. You, you were considering stuff years before that, I think, right? Yeah. Look, we're, we're, this became a perfect marriage, as <laughs> Gil said. We were both separately working on ideas for an AFL project. Uh, Amazon brought us together um, and we had a, a very enjoyable week, grand final week 2019. Uh, and then from there, we just creatively got together and developed what you saw. But what you saw wasn't necessarily what we were planning in February last year. No. Um, further to your point, where we were in February and where we ended up are you know, similar but also poles apart. You know, when yeah. we... We were ready to go round one. We get the news that effectively the world's caving in over the other side of the world and it was yeah. coming at a rapid rate of knots over here. Amazon, um, we'll never forget this call, Gil and I were with the rest of our team in, in our boardroom and Amazon said, uh, guys, pack down, we're shutting down 200 productions around the world. And, wow. you know, Gil will speak to, to his personal <laughs> side in a moment, but... Yeah, it, was, it was devastating for us who had been working on this for really more than a couple of years. Um, but we'd put together an amazing team of people and then to get that news was devastating. But we had to really quickly flick into action and say, "How? what's the way around this? There's got to be a way around it. Yeah. What is that? And then you know, we had to, to start talking about COVID protocols and working with the clubs and the AFL. And the AFL were just fantastic. And you know, it, this is such a, a big project for them to uh, to commission from in yeah. their terms yeah. that they were just so supportive of us getting back up and running and we were lucky. So Gil can talk to you about that meeting. <laughs> I thought you could, I thought you might be able to. So I don't know. No, we um, it was like yeah, it's it was earth shattering. It was the hardest uh, news that I've ever received. My I, so I was moving. I'm from the states originally. Grew up in uh, in Melbourne, like end of high school, went to uni in Melbourne, and then moved to Los Angeles to uh, pursue uh, film and television. And so we, we were in the process of moving the family back, and literally um, my wife had just boarded a flight with our two kids, and then the border gets shut. And so I'm like, all right, I already have to figure out a way to make sure that they get through the border, which at the time it was so hectic. They, they just didn't know the rules, so when she landed – our two boys didn't have their showing citizenship yet. So they were initially like, you're going to have to send the boys back, but you're okay. And obviously we got that sorted, but it was like, it was just speaks to the chaos of what was going on at the time. Everyone remembers it. Um, but we're sitting in the boardroom and they tell us, you know, that the show is gone. Um, and like, understandably so, I think they said we were the last call that they made because we'd kind of already started developing a couple of protocols and we were like, we can stay back. We can do like, it's a small crew. We can figure this out. And we like, I think up until that call, like Luke and I were like, we're going to do this. We're going to ride it out. We'll figure it out. And then they shut us down, um, like 200 other shows across the globe. And, um, I'm sitting there just going, I remember I, I, I collapsed onto the floor next to the whiteboard, caused the CEO a jam, put his hand on my shoulder. I was a mess. Because, like, you know, I was moving my family out. Like, we'd let our house in, in Los Angeles. And um, and we, uh, 
yeah, we like we we were you know broken. I think like everyone was, you know, is that the entire world literally was shutting down, and, and you don't know what you don't know how you're going to respond to that. But as Luke said, you just kind of got to pull yourself up and put one foot in front of the other and just try to keep doing something. So it was, I think it was actually there that like the different entities that like, you know, Luke's background, my background that we come from, because I came from like commercial and narrative filmmaking. So I started reaching out to like commercial companies and in the Hollywood and, and in the UK about like, how are you guys managing this? So like, you know, studio films and Luke has such an incredible sports background. So he started getting information from like, leagues like across you know over in europe and all that about what their sport protocols were going to be so we were just like every day like okay who's doing what how can we figure this out and um we just had this like 30 page document that we just kept going back and forth and revising of how we would shoot in a COVID situation and and the first four weeks of it it was for no reason because there was no thought that we were renewing the show at any point but it was a long process of getting ourselves back up and running and we just we just knew that we had to be ready if they said okay so how would you do it we needed to be ready to go this is exactly how we would do it this is you know research stats already cleared at the afl and and i think you know uh we were really lucky i think we were one of the first shows back up and running in australia so you definitely should be really proud of how the narrative is balanced as well. Like it would, it must have felt a little tempting at times to lean into COVID. Like obviously, it's part of the narrative. It's such a big thing that happens, but yeah, you still tell the stories really well, and it balances off quite well. I think that came out yeah. for me watching it as a piece. I watched it across a couple of nights. So yeah, yeah it's definitely. Um, and I'm I guess as well for you, Luke. Like because you, you weren't in the hub, were you? No, neither of us were. So no. our team, I mean, th this is part of the, the logistical challenges that, that we faced. When the hubs became a thing, yeah. we had to really quickly mobilise our teams. You know, we had six teams around the country from five different states. In each of those six teams, we had four or five crew. We then, if those teams then moved to the Gold Coast, we had to very quickly try and get our teams to get on a plane and go to the Gold Coast, not knowing how long they were going to be away for. Some, you know, we were saying you could be away for up to 32 days, which is the same as what the players were being told. And then that 32 days, you know, if you look at Richmond, they were inside the hub for 116 days in total. Yeah. So we're effectively managing a remote production from our office down here in Melbourne, which posed challenges, there's no doubt about it, but... We had, you know, we had such an amazing team and, you know, led by Gil and Michael Venables, our director, our uh, co-executive producer, that we were, we were able to get through it. And our team just rose to the challenge at every, at every turn. Does that come down to being very clear in your communication about how you want shots to be filmed uh, in each of the different uh, locations? I mean... I can only imagine what it'd be like as a director or producer not being on site and only having a, a square box to be able to go, okay, well, that looks good, but... Pan left, pan right. <laughs> yeah, pan left, pan right. Like, it must have been just as uh, challenging, if not more challenging, than all the other things that came up because of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've... It's funny because, like... You go through a show like this and you realize how much a film crew is like a, a like a team, like a footy team. Like, and, and I think one of the things that characterized our team was that we had leadership at every level of the process. Um, you know, 
Luke mentioned our one of our executive producers, Mike Venables, who um, did an absolutely incredible job, uh, you know, working with not just our crews, but with the stadiums, with the AFL, with the broadcasters to kind of figure out how we could shoot, where we could be. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what it came really down to was the crews on the ground. And we, you know, we briefed them as much as we could. Like I, you know, I did like a visual lookbook and a style book because it's, again, it's a type of show that hadn't really been done in a show yet. So you're sitting there going like, what are the references? How do I, like, you're talking technical a little bit, but realistically, you're not going to technically be able to map out every single scenario that the crews are going to encounter. So you're talking also just kind of like ethically, morally, like how much do you, how much do you intrude into people's space? How much space do you give them? What happens if someone tells you to leave you, leave them alone? Like you're talking, you're really kind of trying to instill a set of values artistically and ethically into your crew and say, now run with it. You guys have to do this now. And um, and so we you know we put a boot, uh, we did a boot camp at the beginning of the shoot where we got everyone from around the country together for two days and kind of talked it through, watched a bunch of references, um, and then we you know obviously reviewed the footage as it came in and continued to work through um, like giving feedback on a weekly basis. But we had a lot of Zoom calls. I think Luke's got the white page, but we certainly over seven hundred Zoom calls by the end of the run. Um, but I think at the end of it, it really just came down to trying to maintain a clear vision for everyone so that like as we cut from unit to unit, it doesn't feel like this group's doing one thing, this group's doing another thing. We really wanted it to feel like it was one cohesive piece from the beginning. And, um, and that was, you know, the big challenge. It sounds like the players really loved the crew. It's funny because we were talking to um, Sam Wiedemann about it. And apparently the Melbourne boys were a bit flat. They weren't part of the documentary. So... Uh, they've subsequently said, "Oh, damn! It's annoying we weren't part of it." So you'll have to do something <laughs> with them. That'd be an irritating. I think that. Yeah, we. I mean, we. I would have taken all eighteen teams if we could, but I think it's it's a busy yeah. enough show with six. So, um, you know, we we had to make a call at some point. But Melbourne, Melbourne were also doing some incredible work just on their socials yeah. and stuff like that in the lead up too. So I think the appetite for this sort of content's only increasing, and I think the players especially this generation of players that's yeah. so in touch with Instagram and social media. Uh, they see not just the value in it, but they it feels like there's a lot less fear of exposing who yeah. you truly are because people are starting to realize, oh, you know, we're, we're mostly pretty good people on the whole. So um, that, that helps, I think. I, I think one story I'd like to add is um, now that I actually heard it on Adelaide Radio last week, now that it's out, I'm happy to, to talk about it, where I think... Uh, Big Tex Walker uh, was reluctant early um, <laughs> of our show. It's probably one way of, of looking at it. But <laughs> by the end, he was he became that you know tight with our crew that our crew was teaching him how to shoot, and he was teaching them how to play footy. So you know, again, that that doesn't happen overnight, as Gil said earlier. Yeah. But it comes with trust and it comes with time. But I think if you sat down and spoke to all six clubs, they would be glowing in their praise of our crews and how they were respectful of you know, what happens inside the four walls inside a football club. But at the same time, the respect came back the other way and as such, we got the access. Mm, yeah. And again, that's massive kudos to you and your team. I think obviously you probably experienced it firsthand. Doing this, the AFL for a long time has been like a Iron Curtain. Iron Curtain, yeah, it's been such a hard thing. And, and that comes back to, I guess, that, that mistrust in a lot of journalism 
um, and how they expose just the, the negative side of players as opposed to just allowing them to, to be their natural self and seeing the, 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 the more human side, not just the elite yeah. athlete side. So, yeah, brilliant, brilliantly done. And I'm glad that uh, you were able to capture that and, and build that trust within the four, four walls of each of those footy clubs and, and probably now allowing some of those other clubs who are a bit more sort of resistant to it to say, oh, actually, these guys have done a great job. Let, let's look at doing something in the future because it's all documented. Uh, we're in an era where this is such an important aspect of not just sport but individual lives. Uh, everything's digitised, so yeah. that's great. Well done there. Yeah, it's just, I mean, uh, it's a funny one because you look at the relationship with traditional media and, like, the headline journals have to be there, right? Yeah. Like, that's that's a it's a side of the sport as well. It's a side of the industry as well. And, you know, it's, like, the last thing that we would do is say that, they like, you know, like, they have a role to play. But I think that I think that because that's been the only sort of media that's existed, what people didn't really realize is that, that you know documentaries, podcasts, these these like longer form uh, types of uh, you know like artworks, uh, they're a they're a way to provide context behind everything that goes on. Like you look at you know you look at what happened with you know Cornelio and 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 the Giants last year, and obviously a really tough year for them. But I actually think they all come out looking far better than what you would think if, if you just read it in a headline, you know, oh, coach drops captain ball. But like, there's a lot of care in that process. And I think, um, you know, we've got nothing but uh, glowing things to say about that team. They were so, they were so forthcoming with us, so transparent with us. I think the end result is that you show that it was a really tough year and a, a year that challenged him as a player. It challenged the, the entire footy department, the entire club. And how you respond to that, like people are going to make mistakes. Like that's that's a part of life, and that's a yeah. part of the game. Yeah. And um, if anything, what it shows is that you know decent people make mistakes all the time, and it doesn't stop them being decent people. It doesn't stop them trying to do the right thing. And we're far we're far more interested in who they are and what they're trying to do than the headline can afford to be because the headlines about what they did. I, I think to add to that, conversely, you've got Richmond, who are the premiership side. Richmond had a roller coaster right of a season, and we, when we sat down with all the clubs at the start of the year, we said, "You're not going to win every game, or it's unlikely you're going to win every game. There will be things that happen, and it's important to capture the lows as well as, it, which is going to really make the high even sweeter. I mean, little for us to know that they were going to end up winning the premiership and going through some of those lows, and, and there was some." really legitimate lows that Richmond um, found themselves in at parts of the year. But credit to them, they didn't shy away from us and giving us the access that we needed. And I think, you know, it, that, that's a different story to what Gil spoke about with GWS because they ended up on the high, but they certainly, they certainly were down low as well. Yeah, well, this is... In connection to that, I guess, was there ever a point where you thought you would follow a player from each club? Because I really liked the narrative with Richmond that, because we've often spoken, we've spoken about in the podcast a couple of times around, I really want to know more about the dynamic between Brendan Gale and Peggy. Because it's, I'm always like, how does that work? They're obviously such different people, different backgrounds. They go about business differently as well. So what, was there ever a point where it was going to be all players or that, that was always the idea to have different people? That's a funny one. I mean, like, players obviously are, I think what fans initially think that they want to see, right, in terms of the industry, because they're the ones who kick goals at the end of the day. And what I was really excited about 
was that our team, particularly like Michael Venables working with the sound team, we were able to give fans a look at players in a way that they'd never seen them before in terms of having mics on them during trainings, during games, getting a sense of that personality through the competition as well. Yeah. Like that white line fever is something that you hear about, but you don't get to see in play a lot. And I think like you think about Nick Natanui, he's the loveliest guy off the ground, but he's a monster when he, when he crosses the white line. So I think that there's a... That, like, that was a really interesting lens. But the reality of players is that a lot of their job is to sit and recover. Like, it is a brutal sport. They train two and a half times a week heavily, and a lot of their time is sitting around recovery. So we kind of knew that it was going to be um, that you just get bored with the routine of it. Players get bored with the routine of it. Like, we talked to them. They're like, it is not that interesting. Like, we do this to play the games. Like, our weeks can be dull. And so I think we always knew that there was a better way to look at the industry and the sport um, than just the player dynamic. Yeah. Um, coaches are obviously always a shoo-in because they just, they're, they're the man managers. They, they lead the team in so many ways in that way. Captains obviously gives you a different angle into it as well. But I think that that backroom, um, particularly with the year that we had, is just like fodder for drama in a way that you haven't seen it before. Um, so even as we were thinking through like how to shoot it, it's like, okay, well the players, it's the wrestler, the boardrooms, it's like Michael Clayton. Like how can we make it the, how can we make the, the brass tacks of the business, something that's really dramatic and really compelling. And, um, and yeah, I, like it, it's one of those things you get through it and you, you end up having a grand final where you're watching the president, the coach, the CEO, and you're like, man, what a, what an angle, like what a different yeah. vibe for, um, the highest special on the sport. Well, creatively, it's definitely a bit. Sorry, sorry, Lou. You go, you go. No, I was just going to say, one, the president happened to be in Melbourne wearing a mask. So, of all years for that to occur, that certainly was a different angle. Oh, for yeah. sure. But creatively, it's it's a better decision, and I, like particularly being on a streaming service as well, with the way um, people consume things. Like as I said before, I watched it, you know, in two nights. So people are, you know, binging it as well. I think I know, you, you started saying it was three days. Now it's two days. You can just admit you watched it in one go. I smashed okay, it all in one. Like, all right, all right. That was actually really good that, that Amazon sent me the screeners. I've just got a, a four-month-old, so sleep is very uh, very up and down. Um, oh, but congrats. Thanks, man. But, yeah, it's, it is one of those things where I think it, it definitely works in terms of balancing it out. Like it kind of almost gives you a bit of a break in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just... Or it just it just it totally different dynamic, which is a which is a good thing. It, there's certainly some light and shade there. There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And as uh, lifelong uh, fans of AFL, um, I'm in my 40s, so but I've watched a fair bit of football and seen it evolve uh, into the game it is today. And Trent and I have discussed, and it was great. I can't remember which coach it was, but they mentioned it's like teams don't win premierships, mm. departments do. Uh, and to see how much is involved in the back end, uh, I think sheds a light on, and especially these new teams that have come in in the last sort of uh, decade or so, they've got to build that back end yeah. uh, for longevity and success. And obviously Richmond, Hawthorne, Geelong, Sydney, they, they've built their departments um, and they've uh, in the back as well as on the field. And I think that came. That was another sort of angle that's come through in, in the documentary uh, really, really well. I think that will uh, just allow the supporters to understand that it's not just the players that get the result. It's yeah. everything in the background that, that goes along with it as well. That's well honestly, like yeah. one, of, one of the worst, I think one of the worst things about COVID for us is that we weren't really able to see 
how much the clubs do outside of the football because mm-hmm. everything was shut down obviously because of the pandemic. But like you, you start to realize when you're around it, how unique the club mentality is uh, for AFL because you've got teams that are running, you know, diversity workshops in their community. You've got like clubs that are running obviously other teams, netball teams, like Collingwood is one of the mo- most engaged in their community um, around. Uh, but they also do, you know, they, they're working out of gyms that the, you know, the people in the community have access to. Like, uh, it, it's it's a fascinating thing because really you, you realize that they're essentially community centers and they are connected to their community in a way, particularly in Victoria, in a way, but I think it's true across the country. They're connected to the community in a way that is really unique for professional sport. And so and that's something that we really did want to show. And obviously that was taken away from us by COVID, but um, it's, a, it's a unique sport in that way. Well, that's Popovich's line. I think he says, you know, organizations win rings, not not uh, not just Tim Duncan. So, yeah, it's it's always interesting to see the difference between, you know, you've got them and then you've got Jordan yeah. and his back and forth. Like, it, it's interesting to see the different like interpretations of that uh, of that concept. But it is true. At the end of the day, like a good place for a player to be is a good club, and without a good club, you're not going to get good players. I think you also need to have a look at where the clubs are at. And you look at the Crows, they lost whatever it was, 12 13 on the trot. But I think our show would pretty clearly show their fans and, and members that they're on the right track. They've got the right people in the right places. It's going to take time, no doubt. But if, you, if you're prepared to stick the course, they'll get there. Now, whether that's, I mean, won't, probably won't be this year, but maybe next year you'll get to see that. And I think the Gold Coast Suns have, have shown that they've yeah. got the right people. You know, when you've got a CEO as strong yeah, as Mark Evans and then oh, hopefully great. people look at Stewie Dew and John Haynes as well, you know, an unheralded football manager, yeah. that they've got the right people in the right places. You just need a little bit of patience. It takes time to build dynasties. You only have to look how long it took Richmond to get to, to where they are now. Yeah. yeah I think almost with yeah. – sorry, you go, Gil. I was just going to say, no, I think it's a great point. One of the things that, like, I've been most floored by feedback-wise was particularly, like, you know, the, the Adelaide fans held the Adelaide Football Club to a much higher standard than obviously anyone else this year. Yeah. And to see the number of people who come back and said, I thought Nixie and Sloney were just too nice and doing the wrong thing. And, like, I thought we were screwed for years. But, like, you watch the show and you see, oh, wait, maybe we actually do have the pieces and we just need a bit of patience. Because, again, it is that context. Like, if you know, as a fan, a lot of what you see is just the wins and losses and it doesn't really show you where the club is going or what it's doing. So um, I think there's a huge amount of value in showcasing clubs that are at the bottom of the ladder and it gives them a chance to show, hey, we actually have the pieces we need to build up. And for our members, like, just give us a bit of trust. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The, the Adelaide storylines, I mean, they're all interesting, but the Adelaide one's fascinating because we kept saying, like, during the year, we were like, they're going to have to really tear this down to basics and just start again. And watching them, watching Nixie and some of the guys trying to essentially break them right back down to scratch and start again, like, he's like, you know, bring, bring a pen and paper and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's really fascinating viewing in terms of, like, how far they went to completely just break that free fall and, and start again. So how good is Kelly too? Like just, yeah. just setting that discipline of like, you know, we are professionals 
behave like it. Like we're paid so well to be here. Like there's yeah. just that humility and that understanding of your role and of, of the, the privilege that footballers have, I think is a really good sign for a club to come. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Stuart Jew, like I think he was probably the one that, like I went, not that I had a bad you know view of him or anything at all like that at all, but he grew like astronomically for me. Like I, I like I'm very excited with where the Suns are going. Like I actually have complete like confidence. Like I went complete, not like I was thinking it's a basket case, but he's like wow, he's got the players. Like that was just like they're eating out of his hands. Like he has got them, and it's funny. Like he is a bit cagey with the media, so he doesn't really let some of that in at all so that was that was very interesting like you know everyone from Raul right to you know the more senior players he's got them like that's this is going to work like the AFL must be so excited with with that um I've I've got a question for you two boys yeah do you think Stewie Jew will be riding in the Tour de France next year that was funny as (laughs) possibly not Maybe Roddy um, c- completing, not necessarily. Might, might get to the start line. But I mean, how, how good was that to see? Yeah. You talk about the way he nurtures his his young talent. I mean, you can see in that you know how many hours was it? Gil, however many hours? Twenty three hours. Twenty three hours. The way he converses with Matt Rowe, and you can see that they're going to be a dominating you know duo for for many years to come. I, I don't know if I rate his estimation of how difficult it was going to be about three days out when he said, oh, yeah, I'll have a go. Like, that's a <laughs> – but I think it does – I think it's funny. Like, you know, we obviously – we did the tour. We, we go around. We, we met a bunch of – Luke and I met every single player and, and, like, football department that we ended up working with. And I came out of it, and I was like, sons are going to make the A. I was so dead set. I bet a, a better case that I still have to get Luke – uh, that they would make the A. And I think one of the things about this show that's the hardest part is you really become a fan of, you know, six more clubs that you didn't follow. Like, mm-hmm. if there's any if there's any negative, it's that, like, a lot of people are going to watch this and go, man, I have to watch, I, like, I have to, watch you know, more for six new clubs. Yeah. yeah. So. Another thing, too, like, you know, it's funny, the, the irony of it in that, so we... I won't name the player, but we had a player we were talking with about coming on and the media department said no because we we swear too much. And I was like, <laughs> and then I'm watching this documentary and it's like Pulp Fiction for the first 10 minutes. I'm like, this is this is wild. But I, I, I liked, I really liked, I really liked the way you edited it because it kind of prepares you for what it's like. You know, this is, you know, you're going to see... Uh, a raw version of it. It's not going to be, you know, one week at a time. You know, you know, all credit, all full credit to the boy. All that kind of language. It's going to be completely raw. It's funny as well. Like obviously, Australians are known for being swearers, and now this is going to go out to two hundred and twenty countries. It's definitely going to uh, be interesting for that stereotype. Oh, that'd be like, <laughs> especially countries where censorship's quite high. They'll be like, they're allowed to say that on television. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, it's 244 countries okay. as well. Don't worry, the, the AFL are all over that. Sorry. Oh, okay. um, 100, 150 I, million people are going to have a view of football. <laughs> I loved yesterday. I happened to be in the car and I heard an interview where they were reviewing making their mark. And there were a couple of um, female reviewers who stated that they've never, they're not AFL supporters and they're not even sports supporters, but because they've got 
14 or 15-year-old sons coming through that do love the game. They've actually sat down and watched, you know, basically binged the seven episodes with them. And yeah. I, I, I was... I was interested to hear their thoughts on it and they said what you just said before about how it prepares these boys and girls because it's the same in at every level, local level around, probably around Australia, in probably every sport as well. It's what happens. But, yeah. you know, you don't sanitise it. And, and these couple of reviewers both said they enjoyed sitting down with their sons and preparing them for, you know, going into to, to what happens next in their own sporting endeavors. Yeah, I do want to correct one thing, though, which is I saw someone on social media said we exceeded the Wolf of Wall Street's swear per minute count. And while that's an admirable goal, we're under it by like about 0.2 or something like that. That's hilarious. Uh, that's hilarious. So I wish, I wish we'd exceeded that way, but that was you know one of our failings. You'll have to do another episode just to notch it, just to get it over. Get it in. Yeah, or, just, or just get more footage think- of Adam Simpson. <laughs> Jeez! Oh, that's oh, a, that, that, is, that is that is actually so unfair. Simo is just on the mark with every single other one of them. I think if we wanted if we wanted an all star, it'd probably be either Nick Nat or Nick Nat. maybe he's Shaw. There's one point where Leon Cameron uses three f bombs in one sentence. Like I, I can't remember the sentence, but I'm certain he does that, and it was amazing. Um, well, was, I mean, Dima Dima's pretty sanitized most of the time, but yeah. when he lets it go, I think. We, uh, I think we, we get to like fourteen and twenty-one seconds or something like that. Wow. So, it's uh, it's certainly even. It's an even burden that is borne by the entire sport. Oh, absolutely! And and those three in particular that we just mentioned all happened to play around the same era where there was no sanitization. No. It was it was a very very masculine sport, and uh, you let it rip, and and the coaches back then uh, were even probably worse. Well, Liam Cameron yep. would have got the Terry Wallace, I'm going to spew up type of scenario. So. Yeah, he dance into their chest from oh. finger pointing. One, one other thing, like it certainly comes across this way, but so you guys had complete creative control. The clubs didn't watch this ahead of time and say, hang on, take that out, take, come put this in. Is that how, how it went? Like it was completely open? Yeah, it's a question we get a lot, and obvious. it's obvious why, right? Everyone wants to know, like, oh, how much is this being managed, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it kind of comes back to that transparency at the at the beginning. Like, Luke and I, like, we, we met with every club, and we just say, look, this is what it's going to be. Like, what we're not going to do is we're not going to spoil your game plans. And, and really, that's what footy departments want to know. They want to know, like, are you going to affect our ability to win a premiership? Like, yeah. that's that's it. So we do, like, we, we did, like, paint out some whiteboards and stuff like that because the last thing because that's like nobody cares about that from a footy, from a fan standpoint yeah. it's not part of our storytelling like other coaches would love to go and scrub through and we, we have heard of some of the guys going through and seeing if we let something slip but so far we're good um but no we pull tactical stuff because again like we want the trust of our clubs we want them to yeah. know that we're there to tell a story about who they are who they really are but not get in the way of their chance to win a premiership. And so we do that. But but from a content standpoint, from a like a creative storytelling standpoint, no. Like it's it's one of those things where like we get asked in, in literally every single interview and, and my default response is usually, Well, what do you think? You've seen the show. Mm. Yeah, well it definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. So like if you if you if you were pulling stuff, there's a couple of places I'd point out to say, oh, you could not cover that bit, you mm. know. But it's it's pretty transparent. So did that make post-production and editing just a little bit more challenging compared to some of the other stuff you guys have done in the past? 
But I tell you what makes it challenging when you shoot two, basically two and a half thousand hours across yeah. a seven month period, and you need to cram that into seven episodes. That's yeah. the challenging part. Look, I think yeah. the reality is we were sport of choice. Um, when you have such strong storylines and such a strong cast, you know, we we're in such a and our team, our post production team, we're just in such a fortunate position. And the hard part was leaving things out. You know, we nothing was left out that anybody said to us that must go out. We always had a conversation. We worked worked through that. And the hard part was the things that were left on the cutting room floor just because it wasn't fitting a certain episode or because of time. Um, one of the positives of uh, one of the major positives of Amazon Prime Video is they have a, a section called X-ray. If you guys aren't aware of that, make sure you jump on because basically there's a heap of deleted scenes on there. Yeah. So jump on there and have a look. Um, I think the audience uh, would appreciate when you have a look at these deleted scenes and you'd sit there and think, how and why did that not make it to show? The reality is it's hard to cram it all in. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, there's some, there's so many gem moments that, that are there though. Like, you know, we've got after, you know, Eddie Betts is racially abused online, there's that beautiful moment when Gil rings him. I really liked that was fascinating, just the way he spoke and what he said. And even like, you know, Adam Simpson, when he is addressing them, I think around the Black Lives Matter point, but he says, you know, if your uncle says something, you know, do you have to say something? Like, yeah, that's, it's, and that's, there's all those little moments that, you know, increase why this documentary is going to be not, I mean, our audiences, obviously, a lot of them are pretty obsessed with football but you know it's going to be you know viewed and, and enjoyed by people that you know don't really know anything about the game and, and that's the thing it's it's got so much in there well footy is a lens on life yeah. right like it's a it's it's a it's an arena that people can uh live a set of values and and try to live them every day both in a workplace and then in a competitive environment and when you look at like the way that we designed the show, it was all about just trying to sh kind of show the values that people practice, not just the ones that they talk about. And so I, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that Simo scene because to me that is like, you know, we're a bunch of white guys sitting here and, and, and our ability to kind of understand and empathize with what Eddie goes through is limited by that. But I think Simo has such a, an astute observation of like what our role is uh, when you're looking at how to make the world a better place and it's, you know, we, we've all got those people, we've all got those people in our lives and, and you just can't let it slide. I love that. I think it's, I think if you're looking at a coach who's trying to build good men, because that's the thing is like most of the people going to the sport, they're 18 years old and they're boys still. And, you know, 80% of the job for a senior coach is just to turn boys into good men. Yeah. And um, I've got two young boys, like I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and, and you look at the way that, um, Simo and, and Leon and, and Dima and every, like all these Stewie, like all these, these coaches are building these young men. And you realize that it's, it's a game about life and it's a, it's a, it's a chance to instill values into young men who are going to be leaders in their community moving forward. Um, yeah, I love that. I'm so glad you mentioned that scene. Yeah, well, that's the thing. One of the probably more interesting things that Sam Wiedemann spoken to us about is how much of time is really spent, you know, building life skills with these guys. Um, yeah. People come from different backgrounds. Like he's a, you know, Melbourne, you know, went to private school, that kind of thing. But, you know, there's people that have had like, you know, Brandon Ellis, like, you know, he, you know, was living in, in a commission when he was super young. And like, there's so many different things that have 
have gone on, and I think you guys did a really good job at, at capturing that side of it because we've absolutely not seen that. You just hear it like you've heard about yeah. it. It's not to get vision on them building them up as as people is is you know another whole element that that we haven't seen. This is definitely not going to be the last time. But, you know, I'm sure there'll be there'll be more of it. Um, I reckon I could, I could watch so much of of, um, of Nick Nat. Like what? This is the other thing too. Like this guy. So. You know, we obviously on the East Coast, we don't see enough of him. Like, what a ridiculous star he is. He, like, rocks up in his Mustang and he's, like, sleeping on the floor. Like, he's just such a enigmatic guy. Like, that must have been amazing to spend that time with him. And as well as being religious as well. Like, that's a, that was the other angle that you guys were able to just put in seamlessly yeah. into the context of AFL. Most people go, AFL is the religion, so all players, sort of, that's it for them. But then to see okay. the groups... Uh, I mean, Cornelia, obviously, um, that's a bit more well-documented, but the, the group at the West Coast uh, to sit there and they obviously do that as part of their uh, pre-game ritual. Yeah. He, he is a rock star. And it's it, it, we talk about COVID being a blessing and a curse in this show because it, clearly there was some amazing content that we got in the, the pivot that we had to. But what we didn't see with Nick Nat and some of our other key characters, as Gil mentioned earlier, is we didn't get to see their... You know, really go in depth in their off field. So, Nick Nat in Perth, you know, for us based here, you know, on the East Coast, you, you know about Nick Nat, you hear that he's a bit of a rock star in Perth, yeah. but he is legitimately cannot walk down the street without being mobbed because of who he is. And we didn't get to really explore that because of the COVID protocols. Mm. You didn't get to see the charity work that he does. He does an extraordinary amount, mm. uh, as, as do most. AFL figures, and this is all the stuff that we, you know, we haven't been able to explore, and hopefully in the future we, we get to to show the audience. Another thing that was interesting too, as well, like we we do obviously do you know some football analysis from a you know an amateur bit of fun perspective, but obviously the game is so heavily you know analysed now, and you know there's so much data and there's so much going on. I really liked as well that you captured that not only is there obviously well, now it's obvious, but you just don't think about it. But it, it, there's so little time on game day to act. Like, this, obviously, like, you know, the breaks are so short. There's only so much the coach can really do at the time. And then in connection to that, like, during the week, some of the things they talk about, sometimes it's just really raw stuff. It's not like, oh, you know, for this week, you know, with, with this player, we're going to have to work on these angles and we're going to do this and this and this. Like, they're actually, we've got a little bit of exposure to that. But at the same time, it's very interesting that, you know, they do these really kind of just, you know, let's just play hard, let's just do this. Like it's it's really interesting to see that all the fundamentals are, are spoken like that because we just don't get vision on that at all either, the tactical side of the game. So... Yeah, it's fascinating because at the end of the day, like you got to think that as a head coach, you're basically just trying to build a machine. Yeah. Like you can't operate it. There's no levers, right? Like you can give them, as I think Simba says, you can give them a cook and that'll maybe work for like five minutes but really, you're just trying to build an entity that functions as a unit and does its thing. Um, and so it's fascinating to see. I mean, I, AFL just released a video on Grand Final that included a bit of Chris Scott talking as well. And, and what a champion he is of, of our game. But um, I think it's fascinating to see how much the coaches have to weigh that balance of tiny little bit of adjustment, like information. Dima does it as well in the Grand Final. Like, you know, mids and backs – like we've got or forwards, we've got to move a little further forward. We're not getting the handover from mids and backs. Like just a tiny little bit, but it's really about hey, just keep the machine moving forward. Trust them, back the system. 
Sorry, Luke, you got to get going. I do. Sorry, guys, I've, I've got another meeting. I just can't get out. No, not a problem, mate. No, Thank, right. Thanks for joining us, bud. That's all right. Do you need me to say a goodbye? You just just exit me no, out. No, we'll, we'll keep it raw. We'll, we'll keep it raw. Yeah, no, listen. <laughs> See you guys. Hey, thanks for your time. No, thank you you as well. And and well done again on putting this uh, pretty amazing documentary together. See you, mate. We won't keep you too long. I guess one other thing I really liked as well, there's always a discussion with athletes. You hear this around the two deaths that athletes have, right? So like the end of their career and then obviously like, you know, the reality of life. But I think you did a really good job of capturing this. I don't think I've actually really properly seen this in a documentary, but there's that scene with Nick Nat when he says, every flag you don't win is a year closer to retiring. And he's like, it, it, you see that unfulfillment in his, in his face because obviously they have such a, a hard year. They have a period where they're really good and they have a period when they're back in WA and then it just doesn't work so well in the hub. Uh, was that a conscious decision to try to chase that and capture that or that was just kind of luck that that happened like that because it was an amazing moment you know it's fascinating it like i mean that moment itself i think is just a, a testament to nick like he's yeah. a he's a we we look at him as a, as a rock star as a physical beast but he's actually a, he's a profound thinker of our game as well like he's one of the everyone rates him as the best rock coach in the industry. Mm. Like his technical knowledge is, is on another level. But as you see, there's a lot more that goes into the game for him from the importance that's attached to it because of the passing of his mom to like what he knows, it, the platform he knows that it gives him and the work that he gets to do. So he's a real thinker of our game. And I think um, missing out, um, you know, on a premiership previously because of injury has really put his career into um, perspective for him. And what I loved, you know, we set it up at the very beginning because the thing I love most about him is he's, he says, like, I'm not, like, there's a reason to do sport and it's to be a champion. Like, yes, it gives me all these other things, but I have all those things now. I'm in this now to win a premiership. And that's all that matters. I have everything else. And I think his awareness of that allows him to really be ruthless in his focus. Yeah. Um, as far as trying to figure out, like, and, and document that, that, First death, as you as you called it, but I, I think it's actually I actually really, and it's not a knock on you, but I really hate referring to it that way because I think what it what it does is it creates this sense that athletes only have value as a competitor, and the and the truth is that I think if there's anything that we see through the show, it's that um, you know like some of the some of the 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 greatest values that sport gives us is, is how, how it turns you into a better person, not a better athlete, not a better competitor. Yes, you're in great shape. Yes, you might want to flag. But, but at its best, particularly AFL footy with its connection to community, with its investment in young men, at its best, it makes good people. And, and people first, athlete second. And so I think that there's a natural um, – that there's a natural conflict that comes when you make that transition from being a, a footballer to being an ex-footballer. Um, but I, I like I, I hope that the industry continues to move in a direction of understanding that um, that your value as a person doesn't end when you stop playing footy. And not and, and also that your value to the sport doesn't end. Like you don't just have to go do media. You know, like you can be a leader in, a, in so many different ways once you're off the field. And that can be on a game standpoint, that can be in a community standpoint, that can be in a culture standpoint. So, uh, like, I, footy's, a, footy's a, a small part of a person's life. You know, it's, you're, we're talking 15, maybe 20 years at the most. Mm. Um, the average footballer, I think, plays less than 70 games. Yeah. Yeah. So, for most people, 
you're looking at it being three to four seasons. And and that's not the end of their story. And I, I think the more that we understand that footy players are people first and, and, and players second, uh, the better the industry as a whole will be for people. So that's where I think you should be really proud of the project because I think you show that. And that's the thing I, I've wrestled, I guess, with the the phrase as well. Like I've heard, I think Bob Murphy, a few other people kind of refer to it like that. But I think you yeah, it's kind common. Of, yeah, yeah. But I think you kind of showed, you know, and Sam's spoken about this as well. Like I guess you've showed you know, how you can be a leader in different ways and, you know, it's not it's not that sort of normal path, it's not necessarily the, you know, the the main thing. So, yeah, yeah and there's yeah. obviously just within a, an, each of the football clubs, it's literally hundreds of jobs and then the greater community going back to the, the grassroots, the, the, the club that they play juniors at or more of a community-based uh, focus like you hear yeah. after the fact that they give back to the community because they know that the community allowed them to go off and, and live their dream and, and play at the elite level, whether that's for one season or yeah. whether that's for, for 20. Yeah. Um, it, it's irrespective for, the, for these guys. I think most of them realise the importance that they're in a very fortunate and gifted position uh, to be allowed to go off and, and, and do something like this. It's not a, it's not something for everyone. Um, and to yeah. see what they can give back to the community is really important. I think that's why AFL in particular in Australia is the, the dominant sport because of that community connection, which again, uh, we touched on and then you guys show really well uh, throughout this. Yeah, and I think AFL as an industry deserves a bit more kudos than it gets for investing in the longevity of athletes out, like after the sport. Yeah. Like if you look at like, Olympic sport, um, like you get off the team and you kind of forgotten. Yeah, like, you know, you, you, you might work your entire career, you might work 30 years, 25 years at a sport. For every four years you get like a minute to potentially like be important and be relevant and to to you know to to set yourself up for the rest of your life. And then even if you win a gold, you might end up coming out of that with, you know, 20 grand, like not, it's, it's not a, yeah. a lucrative profession and you're forgotten, you know, within six months. So like, I think AFL understands that they are taking, you know, men and women at a quite young age, especially like AFLW now has girls coming in 17, 18 years old and they're killing it. So they understand that they're taking kids and they're, in hopefully after a good long career, they're they're going to be in their mid thirties with families, and they're going to be entering into the world in a way that they've never done before. And so I think AFL and the clubs in particular deserve a lot of kudos for investing in uh, in that second life. Yeah. So let's yeah, rather than calling it two deaths, let's call it the second life of a football because 100%. they they do have a phenomenal platform that they can use um, after they finish competition. And I think AFL and clubs are doing a pretty good job. And, you know, can always do more, but are doing a pretty good job, especially relative to other sports, in investing in that second life for the player. And helping them get into different industries as well. Like, you know, it was funny. We had a conversation with um, Ted Richards and he retired, you know, when he retired? Probably 10, yeah, 7, 8 years seven, ago. Eight years, yeah. Yeah. And he, he was like, they they didn't tell us anything. Like, they, you know, yeah. it's like that's nothing really happened in terms of, like, he's now you know, uh, got an investment business and he's, you know, does his own thing and he's doing really well. But like, he's like, yeah. there was no real kind of like, what do you want to do? Like, yeah. should you study? Or it was just sort of like, oh, you know, I know some bricklayers if you want to do some work. Like it was all very kind yeah. of, it was very loose. Mishmash, yeah. It was very mishmash. But then like Sam Wiedemann, he was like, 
oh no, like I'm, you know, they, they help me with this and help me with that. And they understand that I've got to study through this period. Like it was a completely different scenario. And like yeah. he's, yeah. what is he even fourth year in the system or something? But like even in yeah. that seven or eight years. But got a, yeah. but got a, a post-career plan in place and, and yeah. they can build towards yeah. that. And it's very nurturing within the, the four walls of footy club uh, for them yeah. to do that, whether it's a trade or whether it's a part-time university, whatever the case may be. Yeah, and look, it's and it's not just from a financial perspective as well. I think when you look at like you know Richmond, West Coast, some of these uh, you know culture forward clubs, there's also like you look at the Bashirulli Foundation is a great example. This is something that's like a legacy that a player can leave beyond the like you know off pitch that like is as significant or important as anything that he's done winning three premierships. But yeah. like you know, like that's the that's the club helping him set that up and move forward. So I think really like it's the best time. It's it's the best time in the world to be an AFL footballer because it opens up and it opens a whole host of opportunities for you as a young man or woman to pursue a variety of interests. You just have to be on that, and like it's you know they're going to respond to you and your interests. So um, it's interesting. It's like it's you know there's 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 always more work that can be done to give athletes a good livelihood after they finish competition, particularly as physical and conflict heavy as sports AFL. Like you're leveraging your your you know, concussion, brain health, mental health, as well as yeah. physical health. Yeah. But I think that they're taking the right steps for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. We'll let you go, mate. Thanks so much for joining us. What? Can I, sorry, can I just, yeah. oh yeah, well, just a closing yeah. uh, question that's yeah. a cliche yeah. one. Um, so where to from here, yeah. obviously, the two biggest sports in Australia, arguably, you've covered now, Test and now with uh, Making Mark. Uh, you're hoping to now go a bit more sort of direct with the clubs in AFL and, and follow on from this? Or are you looking at other sports? Or what, what's what's to for you guys next? Uh, it's a great, like, I, I'd, you know, be laughing if I told you I had a good sense of it. This show has been such an all-consuming passion for us. So we, um, uh, look, um, I, I should flag that I didn't get to work on the test. That's a lovely show that AD directed, and um, I think it's an incredible one. So who knows, maybe he and I will swap places at some point. Um, but no, it's, uh, I look, we would love to go. We'd love to go again. We'd love to consider more clubs. Um, I think it's the beginning of the high-end documentary investment in sport in Australia, not the end. Um, so we'll look to that. But, um, you know, i uh, my background's in in fiction and narrative film as well, so who knows? You know, the world's kind of your oyster at the moment. So yeah. we're just really happy the show's being received well, and um, and uh, we're you know really grateful to our clubs and to the AFL to be allowed to do it. And you know, hopefully we get some non-COVID football this year, and then we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly an appetite for for more. Like the fan responses, uh, I think from what I've seen, has been been amazing. So yeah. Definitely. No, we've been we've been a bit overwhelmed by it. It's been really exciting. So I did well. Enjoy, enjoy, man. enjoy the highs and uh, take all the kudos that comes Thanks. along with it. And uh, hopefully, yeah, we see we see something else later in the year or early next year from you guys. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having us and thanks for your interest in the show. Pleasure, Likewise. man. Thanks, take care. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, mate. Bye.